Hello, Austin and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. And yes, we are recording from Austin, Texas, day one of the South by Southwest Film and TV Festival, my favorite film festival, if we're being honest, uh, because the movies are great, but the barbecue is better. Um, I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and halfway across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. And our guest today is one of my favorite people on, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, Classic Film Twitter, TCM Party Twitter, etc. For over 15 years, she's been writing about classic movies at her blog Out of the Past. Her work has also appeared at Turner Classic Movies, DVD Netflix, Cine Suffragette, and the Movie Palace podcast, and she reviews new movies on her blog, Kel Movies. This is the lovely, the talented Raquel Stetcher. Hi, Raquel. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. We're taking a little time out from from day one of South By. Um, this is not your first time here at the film festival, correct? Correct. Um, so, why what what brings you here? What do you like about about uh, about South by Southwest? I love the um, array of independent movies, mm-hmm. especially the documentaries. Like yes, the documentaries that premiere here are amazing. Yes, and also South by Southwest has a great vibe, and it's just so much fun being here. Just so discovering those new movies. There's lots to discover. I mean, everything, everywhere, all at once premiered here. Right. I think yeah. last Opening year. Opening night last so, year. Yeah. yeah. So. There's some really great discoveries, and I think that's so exciting. That and just Austin being a great city. Right, right. Because yeah, yeah, because we were we were comparing notes about um, uh, weather adjustments because you are based out of yeah, I'm in Boston. Right, and I came in from New York, and it's just that nice feeling when you walk out. It's like oh no, it can be spring now. Yes, it's it's springtime here. Feels really Um, good to have this weather. Yes, it is. Well, thanks for for meeting up. Yeah, we're we're actually we're we're uh, situated right outside the Austin Convention Center, which is sort of the hub of activity. So if you hear chattering and uh, uh, music occasionally during the show, that's why. I just wanted just wanted to get a little Austin atmosphere uh, yeah. outside of our usual uh, uh, sort of staid home studio uh, audio surroundings. Um, so uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you are so well versed in in classic movies, and I knew, you know. We have a lot of guests who pick, you know, uh, 80s and 90s and 70s. And I'm like, I bet Raquel's going to dip back. So uh, what year did you decide to talk to us about today and why? I chose the year 1949. And I think it's a year that not a lot of people talk about. But I think it's interesting because it's a turning point in Hollywood history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think pretty much any year that comes towards the end of a decade is, is, is different in Hollywood. Like, 1928, 1929, you have um, films transitioning from silent to um, talking pictures. 1939 is the greatest, you know, film year in in film history, you know, with uh, The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. A lot of great classics come out of that. 1949 is an interesting um, year because you have the rise of television. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot more competition for basically audiences a lot of people are staying at home watching tv instead of going to theaters so um you see things that are a little more different more creative um and you see cracks in the hollywood studio system you have the blacklist and how many people were um you know blacklisted because of suspected communist leanings so you have a lot of artists who are basically making their last work for a while mm-hmm. in 1949. Mm. Um, and you also just have 
you know, more independent productions. There's more of a pull away from the studio era. And I think 1949 in particular, you see the seeds of change happening that you'll see more of in the 50s and 60s. So it's a really unique year. And I, it's it's one I think that um, we should look into because mm-hmm. it's just not talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. And, you know, and one of the things that, that jumped out when you sent your top five over, which we won't reveal yet, <laughs> Uh, but one thing that jumped out was that there is a lot of film noir on your list. Yes. Um, which, uh, uh, you know, was very much sort of what was happening at the time. But I'm curious as to what your draw is to film noir. Why do why do you respond personally so much to these pictures? Well, film noir is really interesting because it um, taps into the angst of the era. Mm-hmm. But it's also timeless. So right. a lot of the um, situations that they depict... Um, even though you might not be going through that particular situation, it's still really interesting because you can kind of lose yourself in these stories about crime and vice. And um, and there's all sorts of like really amazing performances. Um, you have like the kind of the creation of the anti-hero. You have blurring the lines between good and evil. Uh, it's, it's not particularly clear lots of great cinematography and a lot of these they pack a punch in like maybe an hour and a half yes. these are not epics these are if that <laughs> on location they're low yeah. budget and there's so much quality and like um from the 50s and on that's when we really started to appreciate these movies so um and now there's so many film noir fans that I mean, I'm just one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, understandably so. All right. Well, as you mentioned, there was a it, it was a, a moment of real change in Hollywood. It was also a moment of a lot of shifting happening in the world outside of the movie palace. And uh, Mike's going to walk us through some of what was going on out there. Here's headlines. 1949 set it off on January 1st, a UN-sponsored ceasefire in the war between India and Pakistan after two years of fighting in Kashmir that followed partition after centuries of colonization by the greedy, cruel, and extremely stupid British Empire. As an American, it is my birthright to hate the British, but as a sentient adult who can just make his own decisions, (laughs) it's this shit right here. Yes, exactly. Uh, the Republic of Ireland left the British Commonwealth because they're no dummies. How'd that go? It's going fine. Okay, good. At Carswell Field, Texas, 13 airmen get their final orders from Captain James Gallagher. Their mission? To fly around the world, nonstop. The flight is surrounded with wartime secrecy. There's no fanfare, as Lucky Lady II, a B-50 medium bomber, takes off. Key to the mission's success or failure is mid-air refueling from B-29s, which have been converted into flying tankers to service the lucky lady at secret rendezvous for the tricky in-flight operation. The B-50 Superfortress, uh, the Lucky Lady 2, became the first plane to fly around the world nonstop because we had already figured out how to do in-flight refueling, a process that seems very complicated to me. <laughs> but, like, fucking USA, bro. USA, like, what are we for? USA, you know what I mean? USA. Like, this was, like, sort of, like, the moonshot before the moonshot, right? Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen um, video, or, or film, I guess. I've seen old film of these planes doing in-flight refueling, and it's 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 extremely dirty-looking. It's very, uh, it's, it's very stand-in for sex. Uh, go right ahead. In the same year was the last commercial ship to round Cape Horn on wind power alone and the first jet air, jet airliner in the same year in 1949. Like we Changing finished of off guard, with wind yeah. and we said, yeah, I'm telling you it was a big year for that, yeah. for that kind of thing. 
the Volkswagen Type 1 was introduced in the States, and the Type 2 was shown in Germany for the first time. You've probably never heard of either of them, but they you've definitely heard of the Beetle and the Bus. Yes, I know those. Yeah, right? From the 60s movies. Yeah, don't get, don't get into that. that bus, man. Exactly. Don't get into the bus. <laughs> if you're driving along and you're a hitchhiker, don't get in the bus. That's all. That's what I've learned from the movies. This is what, like, 1949 is the first time the, the Volkswagen Beetle comes to the United States. Also in 1949, six of the last 16 surviving veterans of the Union Army met in Indianapolis because oh what God. the fuck is time or history even? Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, this is a tight Venn diagram, right? Yeah. Like the Beetle and people who fought in the Civil the War. Civil were... War, literally fought in the Civil War. All right. Uh, in related news, this is the first year in U.S. history during which there were no reports of the lynching of any black people. I see. So, yay for us. news? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But really, the Cold War was the big news. Stalin was still alive and, like, murderous as hell. Mm -hmm. And we had a fucking shoe salesman or whatever Harry Truman was uh, (laughs) to to deal with Stalin. Yeah. Uh, Sworn in for his first full term as president of the United States. Here's here's my uh, only, here's the only trivia I have about Harry Truman. Do you know what, his name is Harry S. Truman, and do you know, Mike, what the S stands for? I think it's a just an initial, isn't it? God damn it. He beat me to it. Yes, it stands for nothing. It's there's no period. There's no period. It's only an S. So if you see it in a book with the period after the S, that's a typo. You can write you can write an angry letter. <laughs> uh, November fifteenth, following the prior year's Supreme Court decision in US versus Paramount Pictures Inc., Paramount Pictures was split into two separate companies with the creation of Paramount Pictures Corporation for production distribution and United Paramount Theaters for theater operations. So, like, that was a monopoly situation. That right? was the end of the theatrical monopoly. That was the end of studios being able to own their own uh, theaters uh, and thus control, you know, put these kind of controls over what was made and how it was released. And really, when we talk about the end of the studio system, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Raquel, this is like this yeah. is z- zero patient for that. Like, this is the beginning of the end for what we think of as the traditional mold of Hollywood movie making. Yeah, that was a landmark moment. It really changed things. And, and, and it gave birth to the independent production. Right. Yeah, because now independent producers could show their movies in theaters that they couldn't right. before because studios had a chokehold on them. Yeah, they could just they could just block out and say, we're only showing Paramount movies at this Paramount-owned movie theater. Uh, uh, you can show your independent film in a back lot somewhere. And that was kind of it. So, yeah, it's, you know, when we talk about sort of all of the changes that were coming in the 50s and especially the 60s, this is the beginning of kind of all of that. Yes, for sure. Good thing we don't have to deal with any sort of content creators being their own distributors and, and thank goodness several gaps. Thank goodness days. there are no no monopolies in 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 the in the theatrical distribution market today. Woo! Yeah. Dodge that bullet. <laughs> Took care of that problem. Yes, indeed. Uh, in, in January, the first <laughs> networked television broadcast happened, starting oh. with KDKA in Pittsburgh. Go and Pittsburgh. K, yeah, in Pittsburgh. Uh, KPFA, the flagship station of what is now the Pacifica Radio Network, started in Berkeley, California. So okay. these, this is like the very early sort of, of ideas of Pittsburgh was was sort of a central location between Midwest content creators and mm-hmm. East Coast markets. OK. And so that's how Pittsburgh happened. All right. Like as a place, I think, not just as a TV network. Fair enough. 
Uh, Warner Brothers debuted Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner in a cartoon called I Shit You Not. Fast, you already know it. Raquel knows it. Oh, no, no, Fast I'm waiting for and it. And the Furious. Oh. <laughs> Shout out to Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner. I swear to God, Fast and the Furious. And if that's nice. not what they don't, if that's not what they call movie 11 or whatever, yeah. then they have missed the boat. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You've never heard of anyone who died in 1949 because they were old. But a lot of folks were born that day or in that year. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But the only one I care about is Linda Lovelace. So let's Mike. Move on. Mike. All right. We'll do some others. George Foreman, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, Andy Kaufman, uh, Irish snooker champ Dennis Taylor. You enough know with it. the snooker. Enough uh, with the John snooker. Belushi. Uh, mm-hmm. The best American, Greg Popovich. I know yeah. you don't know who that is, Jason. He's nope. the coach. Uh, he's a, he's an NBA basketball coach. And right. I'm telling you, read about Greg Popovich. He is the best American. All right. Actress Brooke Adams, who was in yeah. Days of Heaven. Yeah, she was. Uh, Ro- she was in Days of Heaven. Boy, my she goodness. She sure was. Uh, Rob Cohen, who produced The Wiz and Witches of Eastwick, among others. Mm-hmm. Um, Gil Scott Heron, Jessica Lange, Patty Lapone, Dusty Hill, and Frank Beard from ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah, right. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love ZZ Top on this show. Uh, Jason's girlfriend, Pam Greer. Yes, yes. Lionel Richie, Shelley Duvall, Bruce Springsteen, Pedro Almodovar. Richard I think that's. Hell. I think that's the dream blunt rotation right there. Is yeah. Uh, is uh, Richard Hell, Pedro Almodovar, Bruce Springsteen, and Shelley Duvall. I think that's. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with that one. That's a good one. I might yeah. shift it one direction over and swap mm-hmm. Duvall for Annie Leibovitz. It's fair. fair. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, Gary Shanling. All right. Shout out to Gary Shanling. Pablo Escobar, Jeff Bridges, Tom Waits. And last nice. but not least, can I get a woo for the nature boy, <laughs> Ric Flair? <laughs> Uh, right. The Basketball Association of America and the National Basketball League finalized a merger to become the National Basketball Association. Oh, that's the NBA. Yeah, they've been going. That's ever what since that stands for. Yeah, yeah. Right. We're gonna do some sports now. Uh, okay. Sam Snead won the Masters Tournament and the PGA Championship. And before you ask, that was a real person, not a comic <laughs> book detective. Uh, not not a of, member of uh, of the dog pound. <laughs> nope. He was one of the best golfers of all time, and you should put some respect on his very silly name. All right. <laughs> Toronto Maple Leafs swept the Detroit Red Wings to win the Stanley Cup. Joe, everybody loved to see you fight, and, uh, and I believe uh, back in the ends of our minds, we hope to see you fight again. Uh, is there any chance that you might get tired of promoting one of these days and go back in the ring? No, I don't think I'll get tired of promoting because I don't get hit as a promoter. <laughs> but the big news uh, in sports, Joe Lewis retired as the reigning world heavyweight champ in 1949 after 25 successful title defenses. Still a record for all weight classes. His amateur record was 50-4 and four with 43 knockouts. His pro record was 66 wins and 3 losses with 52 knockouts. So his total record is 116 wins, 7 losses with 95 knockouts. Easily, easily one of the best to ever do it. And when he retired from boxing, he became the first black player to play in professional golf tournaments. Because nobody could beat him up. <laughs> Absolute fucking badass. Shout out to Joe Lewis. That's headlines. He beat Joe Lewis's ass. <laughs> he was one of the few. <laughs> oh, sorry. All right. Um, okay, thank you for the headlines, Mike. And now, a word from our sponsor. Discover something new at the 52nd edition of New Directors New Films, presented by the Museum of Modern Art and Film at Lincoln Center. From March 29th through April 9th, experience what Hyperallergic calls one of New York's most exciting film festivals. 
With 27 features and 11 shorts from 35 countries, immerse yourself in new and emerging voices in cinema with prize-winning films from Cannes, Locarno, Sundance, and many feature debuts. Get tickets and learn more at newdirectors.org. All right, Raquel, are you ready for a top five? Yes. All right, let's do it. Okay, so we're going to do, uh, this is not ranked. Um, this is just sort of a, a thematic, uh, random-ish. Uh, there's a method to my madness here. There is a here. method. There's, okay, so thematic, not random-ish. <laughs> Extremely unrandomish. But uh, with all of that in mind, what is the first film of your top five of 1949? It's the setup. I'll tell you, Tony, you got to let him in on it. How many times I got to say it? There's no percentage in smartening up a chump. If he gets in a lucky punch, you stick to your buckets. I'll do the thinking. You ready, Stoker? Never felt better. Good, let's go. All right, so Robert Wise's uh, boxing picture. Yes. Film noir boxing picture. Again, we're going to have a lot of, uh, of, of film noir on the list. It's tell a me, good year for noir. <laughs> it is. It's a great year for noir. So tell me why you like the setup so much. Um, so the setup is actually my second favorite film noir. My first one is Out of the Past, hence ah, the name of my website. Of course. Of but course. Um, I really love this movie. It's, I mean, if you think about it, it's a precursor to all of the wonderful boxing movies to come. Yep. I mean, that that actually was a good era for boxing movies. You have Body and Soul. You have The Champion, which I think was kind of like a knockoff of the mm-hmm. setup um, mm-hmm. with Kirk Douglas. Um, and you have like some boxing movies before, but this is like you know, a kind of a precursor to Rocky and to Raging Bull. I know Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese was very inspired by this very movie. Very much so. The look and the feel of the of those scenes in the ring he mentions is a, is a big influence on the boxing yes. scenes in Raging Bull. Yeah. And it's it's got a lot of elements. It's um, It stars Robert Ryan, and he plays this aging boxer who knows that he can take this, like, very young, like, up-and-coming boxer down. But what he doesn't realize is that his manager and the manager's assistant have set him up. So, basically, they're paid by this local mob boss to throw the game or throw the match. But he doesn't know it because he isn't cut into the pot of money. But once he finds out, sort of, in the um, actual match... His pride gets to him, and he still defeats this other boxer. And yeah. there's a price to pay. There is indeed. And As anyone who's seen movies <laughs> since will tell you, yeah. And this is great because it it blends, like, it's a film noir. It's told in real time. So you have the clock at the beginning, and it starts at, like, 9.05, and then it ends at, like, 10.15. Right. So, and, it, and it actually goes in real time, which is not something that movies did a lot during during that era. And still, you don't see a lot of that. Right. It's just an interesting filmmaking technique. Um, you also have it as a boxing story, um, which is one of those great um, platforms for telling the story of upward more mobility, because mm-hmm. it was, you know maybe one of the most violent ways for somebody to come from poverty and to really achieve fame and celebrity and money. Right. You know, there weren't a lot of roots and boxing was one of them. And it came, like we said, as a co- at a cost. So you got that element. And then you have the added element of this um, kind of almost tragic love story with 
um, Robert Ryan's character and his wife, played by Audrey Totter, and she's like the long-suffering wife and hates to see what's become of her husband after all of these matches. And so you got that element to it as well. Um, and people also really love the short time frame of yeah. the movie, it being just an hour and 12 minutes yeah. in real time. And there's also some great cinematography, the way they shoot the boxing matches. I mean, you get a lot of nice action. You yeah. get to really yeah, get, big time. you have um, the, the shots from the audience. You have the shots in the ring. It's just great cinematography. So you feel really involved in the story. You have like some stylistic choices, which are really great. And it's just like a solidly entertaining movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I've really come to appreciate over the last few years as I've been dipping into this period more just, uh, you know, for, for pleasure viewing. Robert Ryan was just like such a singular presence. Yes. Um, although I, I will also admit to occasionally confusing him and Sterling Hayden. But that said, they both have. That, Two of my favorites. <laughs> they, they, they're incredible because they both have that quality of just like of a life lived yes like they 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 carry such such a you know uh the weight of the world on their shoulders and in the lines of their face they've got these great noir faces that have just like seen things um and he's 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 so credible in this as you know uh, as a tough guy who has a code um, and he played a lot of those types of characters and you always believe him. You always believe that he's tough and you always believe that he has that code. Yeah. I mean, he became really well known for all of his, um, roles as villains because right. he was actually a very nice guy in real life, but right. he was exceptional playing the villain and he was not racist, but he played racist characters. Like he right. knew how to transition to this opposite side of himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, in this one, he's not a villain. So we kind of see another side of him. Right. And he really came to the scene with Crossfire, which came a couple um, years before. Right. And um, But this this is actually more, I think, uh, authentically himself because he also was a boxer mm -hmm. when he was in college. And he was going, I think he won a heavyweight championship in at Dartmouth. And he was going to become a boxer, but his dad talked him out of it. <laughs> so... Um, so the fact that he had that experience kind of adds some realism totally. and the fact that he's playing like a, just a decent human being and he doesn't want to be connected to this like criminal underworld that that is basically intersected with the boxing world. They yeah. kind of come together um, and he doesn't want that. He just wants to prove his skills as um, a boxer and it's just an admirable character and... Robert Ryan does a great job with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind, of, kind of breaks your heart on it. All right, uh, so let's let's uh, move on to the number two uh, movie on your five favorites of 1949. And where are we going with this one? What's next? So I paired two well-known film noirs, and that's like my reasoning. How do I, I group these together? And the other one is DOA or Dead on Arrival. Can I help you? I'd like to see the man in charge. He's in here. I want to report a murder. Sit down. Where was this murder committed? San Francisco, last night. Who was murdered? I was. 
this is one of the best one of I, I'm for my money one of the 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 the, the best most ingenious noir premises that exists so for yes. for those who haven't seen the movie tell us tell us what the sort of the the gimmick of this movie is the setup for this movie is so um it stars Edmund O'Brien and he has been um poisoned he basically discovered that he's been intoxicated with um a luminous poison and he only has so many hours to live so the story really has him traveling from San Francisco to Los Angeles to figure out who killed him? Yeah, to find his own murderer. Exactly, which is like juicy. So and it good. starts. It starts at the end, right. and then it flashes back, and then it comes back to to the end. And um, so basically, the whole adventure is him dealing with these um, these like thugs who basically he it was him being in the wrong place at the wrong time right. or in the wrong situation, mm-hmm. um, and he was basically drugged. So he's discovering who his killer is and i have to say my theory is this is one of the most remade movies of all time yeah. even, this is even actually a remake oh it is it's a remake of a robert siodmak movie um in from germany like 1931 maybe oh my god and that was a comedy so oh they remade god. it into this film noir um <laughs> it's not an inherently funny premise i don't think but but he was a very good director i'm sure he pulled it off and um, it was remade numerous times. Like, it right. was remade, like, 20 years later as Color Me Dead. Mm-hmm. It's been remade as DOA or Dead on Arrival several times, including the one with um, Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan, yeah, from the Max Headroom people. Yeah. And then the Crank movies with Jason Statham are oh, also that concept. Much, yes. And then there was a movie a couple years ago. I haven't seen it yet, but it got terrible reviews. Kate on <laughs> okay. Netflix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah, also, yeah. I think, so the, the concept, I think what happened here is that the concept of somebody who was murdered solving their own murder there's something really exciting about that Mm -hmm. and the fact that this is a slow acting poison gives the character an opportunity to solve his own murder his own ticking clock now i want to know like what the like what the french novel from the 1700s is that (laughs) that german movie was based on right oh yeah that's right and that was also like that's i think it was based on a play oh my god that might have been also a novel or something this premise is even more durable than i thought it was oh my god well it's like the classic trope in hollywood of like the wife or the husband who was lost at sea and they come back and they're um, and their spouse is now married to somebody right. else, like Move Over Darling and um, My Favorite Wife with Cary Grant and Irene right. Dunn. And that was a way to have um, somebody have an extramarital affair without having an extramarital affair. Right, and that's, that's <laughs> violating the Hays Code, yeah. And this is a way to have somebody who's murdered solve their own murder. It's and that concept clever. just kind of took off with this movie. Yeah, but it's really well done here. It's a really, it's, I mean, this is, if I had to like, if, if I met someone who didn't know what film noir was and needed to like sort of understand it, this is one of the handful of things that I would tell them to watch. Just like it's got, it has all of those sort of classic film noir qualities that, yes. that, that you've talked about. And I think this is actually a really good example of um, what we were talking about earlier about Paramount, the um, the case in the chokehold that mm-hmm. basically the studio system had on theaters, owning theaters. Um, the two producers, these were two brothers who owned 
their own set of theaters. Mm-hmm. And they were um, in the late 1940s producing their own movies to show in their own theaters to right. kind of push back against that system. Right. Um, unfortunately, they were blacklisted, so they weren't able to work after that um, making movies. But they saw an opportunity with this. And this is... Um, very low budget, but it's shot on location. And it's almost like a little time capsule of yeah. both San Francisco. There's all these really amazing shots of San Francisco and then also Los Angeles. So you're kind of traveling back in time and it is low budget. And there's some goofy elements to it, but there's something really just also magical about yeah. it being a film noir. And this is where you see... Um, filmmakers really going towards independent production so they can um, be more creative, try different things, and um, also take control of distribution, too. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. big time, big time. Were they blacklisted for being communists? I'm guessing. I did some research on them. So they're communist entrepreneurs? (laughs) Authoritarians are so fucking stupid. (laughs) Sorry. All right. So speaking of time capsules, uh, the next film, Raquel Stetcher, on your 1949 list is, is quite a time capsule as well. What's next? The next one is Intruder in the Dust. The seething fury that grips a town and whips it to the brink of violence, a mystery drama that quivers with suspense, the burning fever that spawns reckless, ruthless action, that's Intruder in the Dust. The strong force of pride and decency which thrives even in the midst of terror. The faith of this boy, the courage of this man, the heart of this lady. That too is Intruder in the Dust, a faithful dramatization of the superb novel by William Faulkner, one of the world's greatest living authors. This is directed by Clarence Brown and stars one of my absolute favorite actors, Juano Hernandez, who um, was this um, Afro-Caribbean actor who, he didn't have many roles, but he um, he was quite amazing in what you see him in. Like, mm. even if he had a very small role, like he's a really small role in The Pawnbroker. Mm. And it's one of the most amazing things about that movie. Right. You know, he's just a really powerful actor. Um, and so he has a really great role in this film. And it's a, it's like a Southern Gothic tales. Um, it's based off of William Faulkner story. Um, precursor to kill a mockingbird. If you think about it, it's it's about a black man who's falsely accused of murder. And you have, um, the town lawyer who's investigating the case. And also it's kind of told through the perspective of a young boy played by Claude Jarman jr. Who's kind of coming into his own and starting to realize, um, you know, his community and the um, the, the the roles of, like, um, um, different races in his community, the racism, and he's starting to realize, and there's, like, this really powerful scene where he wants this black man to submit to him, and he won't. Mm-hmm. And one of the most powerful things about this movie is that you have a proud black man, and that is not something that had been seen in, you know, just... Your regular releases, you might see that in maybe a all like a movie that had an all black cast, right? Like race movies, like yeah, so race Oscar movie Michelle or, or like right. all black musical, sure. but you don't see it in a movie that this is like an MGM, right? Like you know, picture it's it was a big production, and this this to me is like. MGM didn't promote this very well. Louis B. Mayer wasn't happy with it. But I think it's as strong or maybe even stronger than To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. in how it depicts. And you get more about um, the, who the falsely accused it's is. It's less melodramatic. Yeah, it's less melodramatic. Great performances. 
the dignity of of the the black character in yes. To Kill a Mockingbird like takes quite a while to mm-hmm. sort of develop and be acknowledged. Whereas like his dignity in this movie is not developed and does not need for you to acknowledge it. Like, it right. is present from the very right. beginning in every scene and every look that he gives. It's a, it's less melodramatic, and it's also more sort of, like, to the point about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort I of, agree. it takes the point that To Kill a Mockingbird is trying to get to, starts with that, and never lets, and that character never deviates from that sort of position. It's a much stronger statement. I This yeah. was a first, a first time... Uh, intruders for me. So I appreciate, I was really, oh, I really, yeah. And you know, the movie starts off with some, some salty language, you know, and I was kind of <laughs> like, oh, this is the movie we're watching. Okay. But how are you supposed to make a movie about lynching a guy without the language, you know, without, right. Right. I mean, and so like, to it, anyway, a really great movie, but like, it's, it's impossible not to sort of compare it to, to, yes. you know, Mockingbird. And I think positively, I think you're right. I think it's better in a lot of the ways that we, a lot, for a lot of the reasons we like Mockingbird, this movie is just as good, only does them better. And from a, a more of a chest out, from a stronger position, actually, than Mockingbird does. And 13 years earlier. <laughs> and what's interesting, too, about 1949, um, Donald Bogle called this the um problem pictures like mm. it's it's basically there were four movies released this one year and they all dealt with race relations in a way that hadn't been done before okay. so you have intruder in the dust you have pinky mm-hmm. um that had um gene crane and ethel waters um home of the brave which has a fantastic um performance by james edwards and mm-hmm. that's like a war movie that deals with like um um, PTSD and also um, racism too, and then Lost Boundaries, which is a, a, like Pinky. They're both about um, a, uh, people who pass as white. Okay, um, and so all four of these really broke the mold in discussing race um, in film, and that kind of sets us up for the movies to come. Um, and with Intruder in the Dust, even though. Um, Juan Hernandez is in top build. He's got a very strong presence throughout the movie, and you don't really see somebody starring like a like a black actor starring in a movie like this right. until maybe you get to the Sydney Poitier years. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing piece of work. All right. So uh, the number four favorite for 1949, Raquel is is this is another hidden gem. Yeah. Um, alias Nick Beale. Paramount takes you down the dark, foreboding corridors of an uncharted path of adventure, following the footsteps of the screen's most extraordinary character from the dives of the waterfront to the governor's mansion. Nick Beale, who knew every woman's strength and every man's weakness, who made love a weapon more dangerous than a loaded gun. We could have lots of fun together. Don't touch me. Don't ever touch me. Why? You afraid of me? You stupid tramp. I ought to toss you back in the gutter where you belong. This is a noir. It's like a Faustian noir. Yes. 
Um, <laughs> a fantasy more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's directed by John Farrow. Mm-hmm. And one thing you had dad. to know about him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mia's dad, Maureen O'Sullivan's husband. Yep. Um, you got to know about him as he was very Catholic. So mm-hmm. this is, um, it's got um, a subtle religious message. Mm-hmm. And we're in the throes of the cold, the beginning years of the Cold War. There's a sentiment against organized religion. Right. So you don't see a lot of religious pictures in the late 1940s, but this one has sort of like a subtle religious message kind of woven through this otherwise film noir. And it's basically Ray Milland plays sort of like a devil figure who um, makes a deal with the district attorney played by Thomas Mitchell. And if anyone loves It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. you'll recognize him for that. <laughs> oh, my God. I love seeing... I mean, because he's not top build. He's third build, but he's basically the lead of the movie. Exactly. And I, I was not... I didn't realize that there was a Thomas Mitchell starring role out there waiting for me to watch because I'm a huge It's a Wonderful Life person. Um, so that was a real pleasure on this one. I, was, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, Go no, ahead. no, no. That's 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 perfectly right because, I mean, yeah, we're all familiar with him and It's a Wonderful Life. And this is a nice, juicy role for it him. It is. Yeah. It, this is not Daffy Uncle Billy. Like, no. this, is a, this is a complicated <laughs> dude. Yep. This is, a, a you know, a really a torn, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of classic. It's... The, the, the guy who wants to do right, uh, the idealistic sort of public servant who is tempted and cannot resist the temptation. Yeah, he wants to become governor, yep. but he needs um, a particular piece of evidence in order to prosecute somebody and that that will help him get the governor position yep. and champion for star, that. basically. Exactly. So it taps into like um, all the like, all the vices like greed and ambition and then you have Audrey Totter who comes Ooh. back in this movie Ooh. and she's like the 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 temptation of adultery. Yeah, she's the femme fatale basically. Exactly. And um, so yeah, it's basically like a soul to, your soul to the devil type of story and um, and what's what I like about this is that um, the thing with all of these movies is that these movies have a life when they come out, you know, they, how they do at the box office, how they do at award season, mm-hmm. how the audiences respond to them. But then there's also an afterlife. Yeah. Um, and this one had an interesting afterlife because um, it it was distributed by Paramount. They kind of disappeared for yeah. years yeah. and only came back to us in 2017 when Turner Classic Movies um, debuted it on their channel. Um, it also happens to be the last film Hugh Hefner showed at the Playboy Mansion because oh he did all those like the movie nights, uh, yeah, yeah, the movie nights, and I think he showed this like nine days before he passed oh away. Oh my god, um, <laughs> that's that's a little poignant. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, all of us were like, so I remember all of us freaking out online that this movie was becoming available. And I mean, now it's on Blu-ray from Kino sure, Lober. Sure. But um, it just has an interesting afterlife where it's basically been forgotten for so many years. And now it's just, you know, there's there's like a, a film noir audience just yeah. ready for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's great because it has a lot of the, those film noir tropes. But it also, you know, has this sort of fantasy element. It has this this element of faith to it, which is like which is which is pronounced, but not ham fisted. Um, and again, Thomas Mitchell just like crushing it in a leading role. And Ray Milland, like he could do menace so easily. Oh, yes. Um, he's quite scary. In he's this. really scary in this movie. Like <laughs> he really pulls it off of being like, you know, uh, not immediately like the big flashing sign and like the horns on his head and that sort of thing. But you're like, this dude's trouble, Uncle Billy. Stay away from this guy. <laughs> 
And this was his era, too. It was only a few years after he won the Oscar for The Lost Weekend. Oh, wow. So yeah. this yeah. is Ray Melanda at his prime. Yeah, yeah, it sure was. All right. Well, we have one movie left, Raquel, uh, for 1949. What's it going to be? I, I saved... Sort of the best for last. I want. I mean, we talked about four dramas, and now mm-hmm. we're talking about a light Christmas comedy. Yes. <laughs> so one thing about the 19... Oh, actually, the movie I'm talking about is um, Holiday Affair. Connie, I think Carl is just about one of the nicest fellows I could ever hope to meet. But I think you ought to marry me. You know a man named Steve Mason? What's the matter? Did something happen to him? He's down at the precinct in a lot of trouble. He claims you might be able to clear it up. The romantic relationships of the parties involved have nothing to do with this case. You've got nothing but the weakest kind of circumstantial evidence. What's he got to do with this, anyway? He's my attorney. Well, he's my fiancé. We're to be married New Year's Day. And what were you doing in the park with this guy, 8 o'clock Christmas morning? It stars Robert Mitchum and Janet Lee, and it's just a very sweet Christmas story. And you got to understand, in the late 40s, this was a golden age of Christmas movies. Yes. I mean, you've got... Um, the aforementioned It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. you got Christmas in Connecticut, which oh, is one of my delightful, favorites. Delightful. Um, you know, a small picture called Miracle on 34th yes. Street. You might have heard of it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the Bishop's Wife. I mean, I think we're coming out of World War II. Right. And um, also the thing where you can't really show too much religion. But in here you have like some miracles happening sure. or some... Um, genuinely good feelings in um, around Christmas. So this was a really great time for holiday movies. Yeah. And Holiday Affair is basically a story about a war widow played by Janet Lee, who who has a young son played by Gordon um, Gebert, who I met last year. Oh my god, which was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell him how much I love this movie. <laughs> you guys, it's an audio only podcast, but the way Raquel's face lit up when she told me about this, it was amazing. Yeah. How and old then, is he now? Oh, he's got to be in his maybe early 80s. Yeah. Geez. Yeah, he became an ar- architect and a professor oh after. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> after his career as a child actor. Yeah. Um, and then also my favorite actor, Robert Mitchum. And yeah. he plays um, a store clerk who gets fired for being too nice to Janet Lee's character because she is like um, like a secret shopper, mystery right. shopper. And they have this romance, but she's really supposed to be with her beau Wendell Corey, who's kind of like a stick in the mud, stick in the mud lawyer <laughs> yeah. who's yeah. not really interested, um, not really interesting. So it's her kind of battling her feelings. She wants to do what's right as a war widow and a single mom, and he's the safe choice. But here comes Robert Mitchum, and he's really exciting, and she's falling for him. But and he's he looks unstable. like Robert Mitchum, and he looks like Robert yeah, Mitchum. Yeah, yeah. This is like the only comedy Robert Mitchum ever yeah. did, and he had just been arrested for possession of marijuana. Yes. So I love that. that RKO this is like, wanted to soften his image yeah, a little. But this bit. is like the PR cleanup movie for Robert Mitchum after he got <laughs> caught smoking reefer. <laughs> but he's great in it. He's, he's he, so great. He in has it. A, a light touch that you wouldn't expect from someone who does menace. Uh, and and you know sort of torn characters so well he's just he's just very present and he's very charming and affable and him and Janet Lee have a really nice and kind of sexy chemistry absolutely I think yeah. that's what makes it I think the the element of those two leads and their chemistry how charming Robert Mitchum is yeah. uh, Gordon Geeper is just absolutely adorable yeah. as the little boy who just like he wants he's kind of like the impetus for them to get together and then um, it also has a little New Year's tale about new beginnings. 
movies right. too. It's right. just and one thing about um, movies having an afterlife. Um, a lot of this in the classic film community, we watch this movie every year. Right. TCM had a huge role in making this um, an annual tradition for mm-hmm. us. And a lot of us, when we met Gordon Gieber at the TCM Classic Film Festival last year, we told him, we're like, yeah. we watch this every year. Wow. Every single year. This is part of my holiday tradition. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really important movie. I also, I've seen it so many times. I can't <laughs> even count how many. Well, this this one and Nick Beale were both first-time watches for me. So and I I I love them both so much. And so, you know, the thing we always say to, to guests who who bring us stuff we haven't seen is we thank you because I I don't know when I would have otherwise. And both of these are just really terrific and really interesting as sort of noir variations, you know, yeah. like like uh, Nick Beale is sort of the fantasy noir. And this is the sort of like here's the noir hero in a in a decidedly non-noir kind of role, which is charming. And he could do he could do a lot. So, Raquel, thank you so much for this wonderful top five from 1949. Uh, Let's take a look now at what films were winning trophies and making money in that year. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. Best picture, best actor for Broderick Crawford, best supporting actress for Mercedes McCambridge, all the same at the Golden Globes, plus best director Robert Rosen, all the King's men cleaning up. Yeah, it did very, very well that year. Uh, thoughts on All the King's Men? I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but it's really been overshadowed with the mm. remake with Sean Penn many Which years later. Which was not terribly good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 no. This one is, is really good, and Roderick Crawford, I think, like, richly deserved that. That's a, that's a terrific performance. Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, both to Joseph Mankiewicz for A Letter to Three Wives. Couple of Oscars to Baby Mank there. Good for him. It's like a very enjoyable melodrama, yes. and I love the conceit of it. Yes. And it has that sort of mystery element that unfolds yes. throughout the movie. So it's like your typical melodrama. So yes. I like that about it. It got a great cast, too. Yeah, very much so. Best actress went to Olivia de Havilland for The Heiress. Now, that's one I haven't seen. Have you seen The Heiress? I have seen it. Actually, the the novel Washington Square by Henry James is one of my personal favorites. Oh. And um, Jennifer Jason Lee was in the remake in 97. I prefer that one because it's more true to the story. Mm-hmm. But this one, the it, it's really interesting with um, Olivia de Havilland and Montgomery Clift. And you mm. have like... The girl who um, has no looks but a lot of money, and then the guy who has all the looks and no money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's that yeah. conflict, and it's all. I, I think it's a solid movie. Yeah. Gotcha. Best supporting actor went to Dean Jagger. Was that Mick's uncle? I think. I don't. <laughs> For Twelve O'clock High. Another one that I've that I've not seen. I have not seen this all one. Right, moving yeah. on. <laughs> Best Original Screenplay to Robert Pirosh, also Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, went to James Whitmore for Battleground. I have not seen Battleground. I have to say, I do love James Whitmore. I sure do, too. Mm-hmm. I sure like him when he would do his one-man shows as, as an older gentleman as well. Okay. Yeah, 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 definitely. I, I feel like you've probably seen this one. Best foreign film, same at the Globes, Bicycle Thieves. Yes, I've heard of that one. Yes, yes. <laughs> just a small picture. Yes, God, it's, a lot of critical acclaim. <laughs> it's so good. It's just like it. It really is one of those that you will hear about for like you know for ten years if you if you don't get around to it. It's like oh, it's this incredible classic, and then you sit and watch it. Like you get a little jaded, and then at the end you're like, <laughs> it is an incredible classic. I mean, the, and also the late 1940s is when the Academy is really recognizing foreign yeah. movies. You have the, the now the international feature film right. Academy Award. Um, 
So yeah, like Italian movies, French movies, Japanese movies, we're yeah. doing really well over here in the states. Yeah, and uh, yeah, really a key moment for 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 us broadening our ideas here here in here in the USA about what a motion picture could was and could be. I mean, there were at least two, maybe three Kurosawa movies in '49. Like, it's a good yeah. time to to start yeah. paying attention, right? Yeah, sure was. The Bicycle Thieves, for example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other significant award winners: the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival went to Third Man. I've heard of that one too. Yeah, <laughs> a small yeah, movie. That's speaking of noir, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Fantastic Orson being very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. my. That's that is. I. It's. This is not uh, a hot take by any means, but that is my favorite Orson acting oh, performance. Okay. I think maybe even a little more than Citizen Kane. I just he's so he's so delicious, and it's my favorite. Uh, it's just maybe the best prepared entrance in like. All of movies. When he's coming mind. out of the shadow yes, in the doorway. Yes, with the, oh my with the goodness. cat is the cat rubbing up against his ankle. <laughs> oh and, gosh. Oh, perfect. Magic. Also, great hats in that movie. Great hat movie. Yes. It's a terrific hat yeah. movie. Good point. Right. The haberdasher right. was really on the on, yeah. on point for Third Man. I was introduced to this movie through Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures because oh Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet's characters watch this movie and they're all like really excited about it. Wow. They're like very thrilled and they have these fantasies about Orson Welles. Oh, wow. So that's how I learned about it. Nice. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Peter Jackson. Uh, domestic box office top 10. We got a couple. We've heard of a couple. We heard a couple of these movies. Yeah, yeah. Come up so far. Number yeah. ten was Sorrowful Jones. A really enjoyable. I haven't seen that. Bob Hope, Lucille Ball picture. Okay. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. was Bob Hope's time. Oh, he it was sure was. It sure was. <laughs> it sure was. Yeah, we've we've mentioned him when he's come up uh, occasionally before. It's like it is a weird moment when if you're an '80s kid like me who grew up and just knew Bob Hope as this just like lame horrible like Republican who does these terrible specials on NBC two, three times a year. And then you watch these old movies and you're like, oh shit, Bob Hope was funny once. He was really funny once. Sorrowful Jones is 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 quite a good one, yes. Too bad it's not a black exploitation like a, <laughs> uh, a good a detective with title. like yeah. a, a private eye with clinical depression. That is that a good one. Been good. That's a good title for that. Uh, number nine, Little Women. How many versions of Little Women oh, have been put there's on There's so film? many. This one was not not my favorite. I like the Jillian Armstrong one from sure. the 90s. That's like, sure. that, and I'm from that area. Like, right. I live two towns down from Concord, Mass. <laughs> oh, my so goodness. <laughs> I know of particular. which I speak, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this one's okay. June which, Allison as Joe is yeah. so-so. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Uh, number eight, Neptune's Daughter. No idea. Yeah, and this Esther Williams, her oh, typical, okay. like, okay. it's got, like, a Latin flair with the Ricardo Malto bond, so it's not just swimming sequences. You got some Latin song and dance numbers. It's, yeah, it's typical <laughs> Esther Williams fair. There we go. <laughs> Number seven, Mr. Belvedere goes to college. I have never seen this, but I used to watch Mr. Belvedere. I used to watch yeah. Mr. Belvedere. Yeah. Yeah. been in, like, his 30s, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. Yeah. Number six, Pinky. The aforementioned Pinky. Good film. Yes. Good film. Uh, number five, The Stratton Story. Not about Dorothy. Not about Dorothy. She would not have been born yet. Yeah, I mean, the Pride of the Yankees, if you're going for a story about a baseball player who kind of has a medical right. incident and is supported by his doting wife, Pride of the Yankees is a lot better, in my opinion. <laughs> this is very, another June Allison movie. <laughs> very specific subgenre, <laughs> but it's the, it's the number two in the field. Yes. yes. All right. But Jimmy Stewart's uh, great in this. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's something. All right. 
See, Jason, that's why you hire professionals. Amateurs <laughs> can't give you that kind of breakdown. That's why you hire professionals. Uh, yes, number indeed. four, Sands of Iwo Jima. Uh, I have avoided this. I'm not a big John Wayne person. I, I, I have seen this one, and it is... I. You know, I have complicated feelings about John Wayne because I think he's a terrific screen presence, but was also just such a motherfucker. Yes. Um, but agreed. this is a good one. This is this oh, okay. is a pretty, pretty, pretty solid, sturdy little little war picture. Yeah. Number three for the year. I was a male war bride. Oh, yeah. It's OK. I mean, <laughs> Cary Grant has better comedies, in my opinion. He does. He does. It's true. Number two. Battleground. The aforementioned Battleground <laughs> was the number two movie of the year. I have not seen that. No. I've, I've only seen like clips of it. Yeah. And number one, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Jolson sings again? A gun to my head. I would not have picked this that. This is like the worst era for biopics. Yeah. Really bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like they're all bad and they're also all like wildly inaccurate. Yes. Like, have you seen the Buster <laughs> Keaton story? Yes, unfortunately. Pure fiction. Pure fiction. Or even like those two dueling Gene Harlow. Oh, God. Um, biopics yes. in the 60s, one with Carol Baker and one with Carol Lindley. Yes. They came out at the same time and they were both god awful. <laughs> and both with the same title, too. Like, they both Harlow, were 1965. Harlow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awful. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Biopics are are, are too prevalent in filmmaking now, yeah. and they were too prevalent in filmmaking then. Yes. Ban the biopic. <laughs> Hashtag ban the biopic. Sincerely, a very good year. Stan right. and Ollie, though. I did okay. like that one. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> give that one a pass. That's fair. There are occasional passes. All right. Uh, Raquel, you ready to do a lightning round? Sure. Real simple here. I've got a long list of other films from the year. If you've seen it and want to say something, great. If you just want to say yeah or nay, great. If you haven't seen it, you can pass. Uh, we'll see how many we can do. But your your batting average so far is quite high. Um, all right, here we go. Adam's rib. Oh gosh, the chemistry between Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. They have great one-liners in those. Yes. Uh, the Barclays of Broadway. My least favorite of theirs. Of the Astaire and Rogers <laughs> yes, movies. Was this the last one? Am I remembering that correctly? I think so, correctly? yeah. Yeah, yeah that, they, they were done. Uh, Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra in On the Town. Oh my God, the energy in this musical yeah. is crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That opening sequence too, which is a note in my book because they actually came to New York and shot it. They didn't do it on a goddamn unconvincing back lot. That the the New Which York New York was the protocol town. back then, yes, yeah, it sure was. Uh, Jimmy Cagney and White Heat. This really like brought back the gangster movie, mm-hmm. um, with the gangster being in like the lead role, yeah. and then oh my god, the energy off of James Cagney, he's like incredible. he's oh, it's just amazing. It's a great that, movie. That last scene is wild. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, Burt Lancaster in Crisscross. It's been a long time since I've seen this one, but you can't go wrong with Burt Lancaster in a noir. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, I saw this one for the first time fairly recently and it knocked my socks off. Uh, the aforementioned Robert Mitchum in The Big Steel. This, I like to call it the out of the past sequel, even though it can't really be a sequel, <laughs> but it's basically it reunites the, the two leads out of the past um, in Mexico. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Right, <laughs> and change. Ramon Navarro's in it too. <laughs> that's great. You know, that's it's a classic sequel move. You put them back together, you change the location. Uh, Border Incident, another great noir. Yeah, that one. I think that's Ricardo Moldovan. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> uh, Otto Preminger's Whirlpool. 
you know, I saw that once and then um, forgot I saw it. And I'm like, oh, I should see this movie. That's with Gene Tierney. It's very forgettable. If yes. I completely forgot I had seen it and saw it two years later. <laughs> One of my favorite noirs, The Window, was I released in 1949. That, it's really good. Again, one I saw because they shot it on location in New York. It's basically a rear window, but with a little tiny kid. Uh, so it's 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 uh, the the tension is even a little bit higher because uh, that kid's in real danger. Another added good thing about 1949 or like the late 1940s is the production coming back to New York yes, City. Yeah. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Jules Dassin's Thieves Highway. I have not seen this, but this has been on my wish list. To... It's great. It's really great. Max Ophel's Caught. I have not seen those now. Nicholas Ray directing Humphrey Bogart in Knock on Any Door. I'm sure I've seen it, but I don't remember. I don't remember I it either. I love Bogey, though. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Alan Ladd in The Great Gatsby. This is also a rarity. It's it very is hard very to see. very hard to see. And I believe the TCM Classic Film Festival is showing it next month, so this Ooh, is on my list to watch. Okay, yeah. let me know how that one is. King Vidor directing Gary Cooper in The Fountainhead. The story is awful, but man, Patricia Neal and Gary Cooper has this electricity. Ooh. And there's this one scene where you just expect them to rip their clothes off and go for each other. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that's the that's the benefit for that movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Sam Fuller's I Shot Jesse James. I have not seen that. Mighty Joe Young was released in 1949. Passing on that Passing one. Passing on that one. Mankiewicz again for House of Strangers. I have not seen that. Judy Garland in In the Good Old Summertime. One of my least favorites of hers. <laughs> I think her and Van Johnson have done better things, I think. There you go. There you go. The Marx Brothers' last and worst movie, Love Happy, was released in 1949. Is this the one with Marilyn Monroe? Sure is, and, for oh. like four seconds at the end. I watched it for her yeah. and regretted it ever since. Yeah, it's it's not their it's not their finest hour. Uh, two Abbott and Costello pictures in 1949, Africa Screams and Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff. Now, I've seen a lot of Abbott and Costello, but I haven't seen either of these. It's the, Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff is a wild movie because the title is a misnomer. He does not turn out to be the killer in the movie. I don't know how they didn't get sued. Um, another big time comedy team, uh, Martin and Lewis made their film debut in 1949 in My Friend Irma. I have not. Have you seen this one? Uh, yes. It's not their finest hour. Um, it's one of those, it's like their first movie, so they're more in supporting role and you're just like, get back to Dean and Jerry, for God's sake. <laughs> Uh, Samson and Delilah was released. It's been a long time since I've seen that. But also in the, once you get into the fifties, all those like epics too, all those historical epics come about. Yes, indeed. Uh, Kira Kurosawa's Stray Dog was released in 1949. I've seen that. Like I, I started watching Kurosawa like really heavily in, um, the last like year or so. Mm -hmm. And he's genius. Absolute genius. And I like his non samurai movies better than his samurai movies just personally. No, the the crime movies are really, yeah, 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 definitely. (laughs) Um, and finally Alfred Hitchcock's under Capricorn. Not one of his great. I don't think he should have made historical dramas. It was not. His but Ingrid Bergman. Milieu. Yeah, I love was, Ingrid Bergman. It was not his milieu. He was not not comfortable in that particular period. And I don't think he really liked it no. either. I think he told Francois Truffaut in like that famous interview that yep. they did that that wasn't one of his yeah. favorites. Well, I think that's also one of the ones where he was still experimenting with like long take technique. I think it came like either right before or right after Rope. And so he was playing with that. So, you know, whatever, an experiment, but uh, not Hitch at his best. All right. That was that was a really good batting average on a lightning round. I got to say, Mike agrees. Mike agrees. All right. And now uh, we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. 
head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right, Raquel, where can people follow you on social media? So I'm on Twitter as long as it's still up, you yep. know, and running. You can find me just at my name, Raquel Stetcher. Um, my website is outofthepastblog.com. And I also have RaquelStetcher.com. I recently got that. And hey, all my work congratulations. There, oh, thank you. <laughs> all my work there for Turner Classic Movies. I write research articles for them, and I started writing YouTube scripts. So for their YouTube channel, I... I'm working on their film 101 series. Nice. Um, so all my works on there as well as my work for DVD Netflix. So it's all in one spot. RaquelStetcher.com. Beautiful. Check it out. Uh, I'm Jason Dash Bailey on Twitter. Fun City Cinema on Instagram. Mike, where can people find you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. And uh, Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1949? My favorite movie of 1949 is called Blood of the Beasts. It's a French documentary. It's about 20 minutes long. It's on Netflix or it's on YouTube, I mean. And it is a movie where a guy goes to a bunch of slaughterhouses and films people murdering animals. Like, I mean, it's like as brutal as it can possibly be. It's the movie PETA like sneaks people into places that they really want you to watch. But then he just goes outside. And it's mm -hmm. all this beautiful French countryside. Mm -hmm. And it's like not long after they suffered through two world wars. And there's all these just like French dudes in soft hats with cigarettes looking bored while they butcher thousand pound animals. It's the fucking weirdest movie. It is very, very weird and very surreal. And <clears throat> I, I've seen it. I don't know. I've probably watched it 20 times over the years. And wow. I still don't really understand. I don't feel like I understand it still and it's just mm -hmm. like the kind of movie that can like take you into a per a very weird person's brain and sort of drop you off I, it's just a movie i can't wrap my head around uh blood of the beasts watch it but not while you're eating maybe don't watch sure, it sure. i don't know i like it jason <laughs> what's your favorite movie in 1949 well we mentioned it during the lightning round but i do have a big big soft spot in my heart for the window uh which is this really tight little film noir uh shot on location on the lower east side uh, of new york uh, and about, you know, a kid who's sort of, it's kind of a never cry wolf tale. It's this kid who's always like making up wild stories and telling his parents and his teachers, you know, that his parents won the lottery and all this sort of stuff who, you know, on a hot summer night in New York, they're sleeping out on the fire escapes as they do. And he uh, climbs down and accidentally sees a murder um, in an adjoining apartment and tries to report it and no one believes him. And then the people who committed the murder know that he reported it and know that he saw it and are trying to kill him. Uh, so it is sort of like, you know, rear window five years beforehand. Um, but uh, really well done, incredible location photography, terrific kid performance. Like one of those ones they gave the kid like a special Oscar for like excellence in child acting or whatever. It like, was a good era for child acting. It really was, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a really good, tight little uh, sort sort of sort of underseen noir. But it recently got um, a Blu-ray release from Warner Archive, so you could, it's pretty easy to track down. I'll have now. to check that out. Yeah, yeah, do it's a good one. The the window, easy easy title to remember as well. All right, thank you again, Raquel. Thank you. And thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very. 